You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Good morning, beloved. Such a privilege to stand in front of God's children to bring his word to them this morning. I count it a privilege, an honor, and a heavy responsibility. Today, we're going to be continuing on the series of Jesus, the Light of the World. And last week, uh, Scott talked to us about Jesus, the Light of the World, as a light to the Gentiles. Josh, do we have a, some slides coming up? Okay, get it, launch that. Um, today, I'm going to talk about Jesus, Light of the World. I am the Light of the World. Next week, Julie will talk to us as Jesus, the Light of the World, the Glory of God. And then I'll be back the following week to talk about Jesus, the Light of the Incarnation. When Steve first proposed this series, I was immediately excited because this is one of the topics that I find quite interesting. I tend to dabble in and read a little bit about um, science. I don't understand much of what I read, but I am intrigued by the principles of physics. And light has a lot of interesting characteristics to it, as does water. We're still learning a lot about how they perform, how they function. Light is just the visible part of the magnetic spe- electromagnetic spectrum. And it's uh, interfering with the graphic stability right here now as I'm trying to get this going. <clears throat> it travels at a constant speed represented by the letter C, which I assume stands for Christ. No, don't hit that, Josh. Hit that arrow. Don't hit anything. Don't touch anything. Don't touch anything. Don't touch anything. Okay. That should have worked. Oh, okay, we're good, we're good, we're good. I know where we're at, I think. No, it's, it's just not working. I don't know, we'll go without it then. Um, just a few pictures, you don't really need to see them. Maybe just turn it off completely and start it up again. It's one of these things, you come in early, you test it, make sure it works, then you get up here, it doesn't work. Okay, that's how it goes. So, um, uh, Einstein used the speed of light to help us understand that uh, mass and energy are basically the same thing. See, miracles are occurring. Christmas miracle right in front of your eyes. Okay. <laughs> Apparently nothing can uh, travel faster than the speed of light unless, of course, you can manipulate time, which we're now learning how to do. And Don was telling me just a few weeks ago that light can travel faster than the speed of light somehow. It just you know, blows your mind, the things that we're learning. I sometimes wonder how light can travel so fast, so instantly. I mean, I turn on a flashlight, and instantly I have something moving at 186,000 miles per second or whatever it is. It's fast. It bounces off objects, reveals their color. It bounces off people and reveals their character. If we measure it as a wave, it becomes a wave. If we measure it as a photon, it becomes a photon. It's like it somehow knows what we're looking for. When light hits our optic chiasma, we, our brain senses that it's time to wake up and our circadian rhythms are set in motion. Plants absorb light and get energy. Our skin absorbs light from the sun and it produces vitamin D. Light exposes. And this series on Jesus of the light of the world is purposely intended to bring us into focus during the Advent season. Advent, the arrival of a preparation for the arrival of something. I often wonder what it would have been like to have been there that night. I mean, all births are special miracles, really. I got to hold little Simeon Jaredin just a few days ago, our eighth grandchild. He was two days old. In this picture, he's about two hours old. I only found a way to get one of my grandchildren's pictures into a sermon. Here. <laughs> 
Because Simeon, he, uh, he grew and lived in darkness for nine months. And now he's in the light and he keeps his eyes closed for the most part. The light's too much for him. He prefers the darkness for now. But in time, he's going to fear the darkness and prefer the light. Kind of like the situation we're in with our Heavenly Father, isn't it? I'm always uh, have been an introvert all my life. I'm at home in my world of my thoughts, my deep, deep thoughts that I have. I have solved world hunger, <laughs> global warming. I have created free energy for all mankind to enjoy and have written several episodes of Seinfeld, all in my mind. <laughs> See, I've always been more detached than connected. I was usually the last to know about anything, all the gossip going on around me. And whenever I did get a hold of a piece of juicy information and I attempted to pass it on to someone else, I could never find anyone who already didn't possess my malicious information. <laughs> I was always the last to know as I lived in the dark. Have you ever felt that way? Like you really didn't know what was going on around you? I mean, really, what's going on around you? I've always been intrigued with stories of people who died and lived to tell about it. Not so much for the purpose of defining my theology. I just find them encouraging. They almost always line up with what we see in Scripture. You've heard them, I'm sure. They all seem to start with, as the person left their body, they encountered a great white light. And I believe that light that they're encountering is our Savior, is our Lord. He is the light, the one who came to rescue us. It occurs to me that perhaps the Christmas celebration, and particularly the manger scene, is misrepresentative. Well, say you've been held captive for many years in some deep, dark pit of despair, and when your rescuer arrives, would you welcome him to your captivity and throw a party? Or would you say, I'm ready to get out of here. You're in, I'm in your hands. Let's go. Perhaps a better manger scene would be billions of people standing around the Christ child with their bags packed, all ready to go. Of course, Jesus would have had to tell them, you're going to have to wait 33 years. I have to buy your ticket with my blood. Of course, that's not what happened. In fact, we, don't, we didn't even realize we were being held captive. And for those who did realize that they needed to be rescued, they had a diminished view of what their rescuer would, be, would look like. It would be like when Rambo shows up to free the hostages and they back away from him in fear. And Rambo's like, come on, let's hurry, let's go, we're in danger, just got to get out of here. And they're like, uh, yeah, we're good, uh, thank you, but uh, go on your way. Uh, we're looking for someone else who fits our predetermined view of what our rescuer will look like. But he insists, you're in trouble, you're in deep, deep trouble, come with me, come with me. And finally, they shout for the guards and turn him in for execution. They missed him, and they returned back to their cells, comfortable in their misery. So we have a few verses to talk about today, to focus on Jesus as the light of the world. Our main focus, though, is in John eight twelve, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, to put this verse in context, we can understand that where Jesus was when he said this. And Justin has talked about this in the past, and I was intrigued by that and studied that again. That when Jesus spoke this, it was the time of the festival of the booze or the, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and during that Jewish festival, Jesus was there, and he began teaching openly in the temple, and he stirred people up. In two different ways. Some he stirred them up and they thought he was amazing and awesome. And others didn't like what he had to say. But during this, this week, or these actually eight days of this, of this festival, each evening these huge lamps would be lit in the court of women. And, this, and, it, and it's documented that the light from these lamps was so amazing that it filled the courtyards of all the courtyards 
in that city. It was during that time, perhaps when Jesus said, I am the light of this world. These lamps were lit in celebration of what God had done as their salvation, and particularly leading them out of captivity. And it represents that God presented himself as a pillar of fire by night. It might have been during that time when Jesus said that. So to be clear, when Jesus says this at this time, it's quite significant because Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of what the temple and the festival is all about. And they miss him. Or to use a weak analogy, it would be like we're at a post-Super Bowl party after the Ravens have won, and Joe Flacco's walking around trying to share with us how he's won the game, but nobody recognizes him. And after a while, we'd call security. Get this guy out of here. Who does he think he is? We would miss him. Understanding this concept in this context helps us appreciate the power of his statement. He's saying, I was the fire that led Israel through the physical darkness, and furthermore, I am the light that's going to lead you out of spiritual darkness. But there's another context that I find interesting I didn't think about until I was preparing for this, and that is when he said this, it was right after a particularly interesting interaction we're all familiar with. And that is when they, they came to him with an adulterous woman. This is in John 8, and it says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts. Now this would have been after the eighth day, so and it, technically the festival is over at this point. And all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them, as he has been doing for several days. The teachers of the, of the law and the Pharisees brought a, in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. Probably had a lot more sin to consider than the younger ones. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, for this time to gather together as your children and brothers and sisters before you to dwell in the light where we can learn from you all things and all truth. Bless this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is another context we need to consider. He's just been through this interaction with the Pharisees and this adulterous woman. And then he begins teaching, and the first thing that dawns on him that comes to his mind to say is, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks after me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Interesting thing to think about next. I mean, I teach a lot for a living, and I often will start talking about something and realize everybody's looking at me like, what are you talking about? And so I have to make sure I connect what I'm talking about to what I was talking about. Jesus just went through an interesting interaction with these people, and the next thing he says after dealing with these Pharisees and this adulterous woman is, I am the light of the world. I think it's interesting. 
that whole passage, there's so much that we could talk about for weeks just in that passage. But for brevity, let's keep this little focused here. The Pharisees only brought this woman to him to do what? To set a trap. That's why they brought Their motives were all wrong. If they really believed in the law of Moses, wouldn't they have already stoned her? They were setting him up. And ironically, they bring her to the only one who has the right to judge anybody. Even more ironically, they're attempting to pass judgment both on her and on Jesus, and they themselves are steeped in sin, walking in darkness. I'd like to ask Warren a question, our, one of our resident lawyers. Warren, have you ever had any of your clients stand up in court and pronounce the judge guilty? No. No. <laughs> I, the defendant, find the judge guilty of my crimes. (laughs) I don't think that's going to happen, is it? And yet that's what they were doing. I wonder why the woman didn't walk away as well. I was thinking about that a lot. I mean, she stays with him. I I mean, I think if I was her and I saw everybody else leaving, I'd just kind of see if I could slip out too. (laughs) But she stays there. I wonder why she did that. Perhaps it was fear. Perhaps it was hope. I don't know. Certainly, she was thinking if the Pharisees brought her to Jesus for condemnation, he must have the ability to do that, but she stood there anyway. Maybe, maybe she just didn't know what else to do. You ever been in situations where you weren't sure what else to do and you felt guilty? You know what she's teaching us? Whenever you're not sure what to do, stand before Jesus. That's what she did. She stood before Jesus, and he gave her a life sentence, free from sin, the light of life. We see light first mentioned in scriptures in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, the first chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God was dwelling upon the waters. And the third verse says, and God said, let there be light. That's how he created with the word let. I find that interesting and fascinating. He just allowed things to come into being. He spoke, and the universe began vibrating. It began shaking and pulsating and oscillating. See, I don't think there was a big bang. I think there was a big shake, and everything started vibrating, and everything still is vibrating to this day. In fact, God even talks about this in Haggai, when he says, this is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. He just said, let. He didn't complain light into existence. He didn't say, it's entirely too dark here. (laughs) If he had said that, the universe would not have known what to do. He didn't say what he didn't want. He said what he did want to have happen. You know, we can't complain goodness into existence either. Our complaining about the church or the government or society does nothing to move anything towards goodness. The more we complain, the more God will give us things to complain about. Practice thanksgiving, and God will give you more things to be thankful for. And then we jump across time to John 1, where we know that John says, In the beginning was the Word, or we could say when the beginning started, the Word already existed. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. 
In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. John starts out talking about Jesus as the light. And he continues to capture times when Jesus talks about himself as the light. In John 3.19, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world. And men love their darkness rather than the light, for their, evil, for their deeds were evil. The light itself is judgment. He also says in John 9.5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He begins to allude to something that's getting ready to happen. And later on we see in John, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you might become sons, or other translations say children, of light. This is being passed on to us. For Matthew, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. He first claims he is the light of the world, and then he says, we are the light of the world. And then he goes on to tell us to do something. He tells us to let our light shine before men so that they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. You know, sometimes I forget that most of Jesus' testimony was in his works, not just his teachings. Who could do all these works and not be the Messiah, they would say. We are the light of the world, so we let our light shine. Not make. It doesn't say make your light shine, does it? Just allow it to permit it. It's already in you. I know you want to do good, don't you? You think about these things all the time, but sometimes something holds us back. Just let it shine through. Well, like I said, if I could go back in time... In my world of deep thoughts, I think about this a lot. Anybody else besides me do weird stuff like that? (laughs) I would like to go back to the time of Jesus. Which time, I'm not sure, but his birth would certainly be a time I'd like to visit. But since I can't do that, I thought the next best thing would be an interview with someone who was there or near that time of birth. So I made arrangements to interview three key witnesses, eyewitnesses, and one of them is here today the innkeeper. None of the magi or the shepherds could make it today, but they'll be here in two weeks. Very busy schedule this time of year. So if you come back in two weeks, you can hear their version of the story. And I asked each eyewitness the same question. What do you remember about the birth of the light of the world? And here's what the innkeeper had to say. Light of the world, the birth? Yeah, that's what he came to be known later. Called himself that, I heard, but I don't know what was happening that night. I've always felt like I have to defend myself about that night, but what really did I do wrong? I'm talked about all the time, but I'm not specifically mentioned in the scripture, and yet people talk about me like I'm some kind of a bad guy. But people, I think, have made some assumptions based on what I believe to be a mistranslation of a word, and therefore inferences made about that. Listen, I'm a businessman. I'm trying to survive. I'm speaking to you as a man of the world, as some of you are trying to survive, trying to make a living. I'm not saying I wasn't there. I was there. There were several innkeepers at Bethlehem at the time. We don't always have time to stop and notice what's really going on around us, the miracles or the suffering. You might not know what it's like to run an inn. 
there's always a million things to do, and each thing is like a tree to be cut down. And I lived in a forest of these trees, making sure the rooms were ready, paying bills, making sure the guests paid their bills, ordering supplies, tending the animals I had to keep, chopping wood so the fire wouldn't go out. The fire goes out, it gets cold real fast, especially the heart. The heart can grow cold. When you live in a forest of trees, things to do. The young couple, sure, I remember them coming to town. I mean, everybody notices new people coming to town. He looked worried and she looked tired carrying her burden. She looked tired, but her face, so pure. I can't get it out of my mind. Did I say her burden? Now, she appeared to be carrying a privilege, an honor, so young, so innocent, so confident, so tired. I see everything in my life as a burden, yet here's this young girl walking with dignity. She saw her role as a privilege, her suffering as an honor. I would have been privileged to have them stay with me in my inn, but they were staying with family. He's here. He's from here originally, you know. Joseph is from Bethlehem. That's why he had to come back for the census. Joseph was a descendant of King David, and Bethlehem was his hometown. Now, being a descendant of King David and coming back to Bethlehem, how do you think he would have been received? Left out in the cold? No. Think Jewish first century people. He would have stayed with his family. That's still there. Don't be so startled I say he stayed with his family. Jews, if nothing else, are the most hospitable people in the world. They are commanded to be so, in both in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and those scriptures are about how they treat strangers. How do you think they would have treated their own family? They would have been mortified to find out that their own family was staying at an inn. No, he was staying with his family. The confusions come about due to a translation of the Greek word kataluma, which means place of rest, or usually we referred to a guest room. They placed him in a manger because there was no room for him in the kataluma. That word means guest room. It doesn't mean inn. If you want the word for inn, we have a different word, and that word is pohokion. Remember the story Jesus told about the Good Samaritan? And the Good Samaritan found that man who's half dead, and he took him, and he bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to Pantochion, an inn, and took care of him. Remember when Jesus sent his disciples ahead of him to prepare for the Passover? And Jesus, they said, where do you want us to prepare for? And Jesus says, go into the town and you will meet a man carrying a jar of water. And follow that man to the house that he goes in. And when he goes into that house, you follow him in. And you say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the kataluma, the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? I mean, if we use the translation that's more traditional in Luke 2, he would have said, say to the owner of the house, where is the inn where I may eat the Passover? That wouldn't have made any sense. There was no inn that they came to. Mary and Joseph stayed with his family. In fact, they were there for some time. If we read in Luke 2, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. I told you that already. 
He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Other translations say, and when the days were completed. So they'd been there for a while. I mean, the traditional view, I don't know if you've kind of told it like this, but it's like Mary and Joseph show up to this inn, they're told there's no room, they go right out back, and a few minutes later she has a baby. <laughs> That's not a careful reading. And, and I just share this with you because you, this church has a reputation wanting to handle the Word of God accurately. I'm not trying to destroy your image of Christmas. <laughs> the fact that the baby was placed in a manger tells me that the family that he was staying with was not particularly wealthy. (laughs) But a lot of the homes in that area had a very similar layout. There was a stable there. Many of them are designed this way. The stable is is down on the ground, and this elevated area of the family, the large family room, is elevated and open to the stable area. And then the Cataluma would be like an attached guest room that they would have because they were commanded to be hospitable. So this large family room, see these mangers here were usually dug into the ground, but sometimes they were also made for wood for the, for the hay for the animals to eat. And see how the animals could just simply walk over to the manger because it would be right about at their level for eating. That's what Jesus would have been put into. Sure, it would smell, but it was sort of a win-win situation because the animals were brought in at night. During the day, where were they? They were outside grazing. But they were brought in at night. Why? To protect them from predators or thieves. So it was a win-win because the animals' body heat warmed up the rest of the room where the family was living in, and they got protection. And again, it smelled a bit, but these are people of the earth. Uh, we might not enjoy the smell, but it didn't bother them as much. And like I said, I'm not trying to destroy your image of Christmas and the birth of Jesus. I'm just shedding light. Jesus is the light of the world. I'm shedding light on what more likely happened. In fact, I think it's a better story. The light of the world, the Son of God, the Savior of all mankind, was born among family. In a lowly estate, there was a stable right there. He was placed right next to it. And the owner of the home would not have considered asking the guests who were already in the guest room to move out. That would have been wrong. And Mary and Joseph would have been mortified if they had done that. In fact, it would be better to be in the main room anyway where there's more space for the other women in the village to come and help her, the other women who knew about these things. It would be a big event. Most of the men would have stayed outside during that time. So please stop thinking of the old innkeeper so poorly. Better you should feel sorry for the innkeepers. I was there somewhere nearby but I wasn't there. I missed him. Pray for the innkeepers. Pray for those who keep things in, who hide from the light, who hold on to their pain and their anger and their bitterness and their resentment and their grief and their misery. Pray for us. Pray for those who hide among the forests of trees of things to do and never learn how to be. They avoid the light. You search for the love of your life forever. When the love of my life came near, I missed him. So pray for the innkeeper.
The forest is calling. This interview is over. The word of God dwelt among us and now dwells in us and tabernacles in us. God said, let there be light. Jesus said, I am the light. I am your life. Then he said, you are now the light. Let your light shine. So I'd like to conclude with a prayer that I'd like to guide you in if that's okay. I'll say a a phrase and you'll repeat after me. Is that okay? Let's close our eyes and pray. Pray after me. Lord, I'm beginning to see the light. You are the light. You are my life. Your life is in me. Now I am the light. I am light in the world. I choose to allow my light to shine. I'm not always comfortable thinking I am light of the world. I am growing in knowledge, understanding, and wisdom about who I am in you and who you are in me. I am humbled with this privilege of being light to those around me. I am humbled with your generosity. I am filled with compassion for those walking in darkness. I am confident in what you can and will do through me. I am at peace, comforted in your presence in me. I am consumed by your love. I bow down to worship you. And you lift me up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing together a song we sang last Sunday. A little slower. This little light of mine I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.